You are listening to the teaching ministry of Christ the King Reformed Baptist Church, located in Utica, New York. At Christ the King, our desire is for you to not only know Jesus as Savior and Lord, but to also learn to walk joyfully in obedience to God's commands. To learn more about our church, please visit us at www.kingskirk.org. That's K-I-N-G-S-K-I-R-K dot O-R-G. So if you have your Bibles, and as Pastor Chad says, I hope you do, please open them to Job chapter 1. I'm going to be reading verses 6 through 12. And if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. It's the reading of God's holy and perfect and infallible and inerrant word. You may be seated. So if you were with us last week, we covered Job 1, verses 1 through 5. We learned a lot about Job's character, his wealth, his moral obedience and great faith, his family, and so on. And as we move on to Act 2 of this great book, we are transported into the spiritual realm. God has given us a glimpse behind the curtain, if you will, into what is normally hidden from natural man. This interaction between God and Satan, the sons of God. We're going to get a a behind-the-scenes look uh, of the interactions that take place in the spiritual realm this morning. And I don't know about you, but that really excites me. I think that's really cool. So verse 6 begins, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Let's stop right there. The sons of God. Who are these sons of God? Well, the sons of God refer to a divine council or an angelic host. We'll see that again later in Job 38. Now they may very well be called this on account of their creation by the father of spirits. God is the father of those whom he's created in some sense. Um, That's not the same as becoming an adopted child of God through repentance and faith and him being our adopted father. But he did create these beings. And as well, uh, their missions to mankind, right? They are serving as messengers or mouthpieces of God. In many places, when angels appear in the scriptures, people fall down to worship them as gods. Now, they correct the people and say, do not worship me, worship God alone. And I use the term gods with a lowercase g, Uh, But they are the children of the Most High. They are angels, sons of God, and they surround the throne of God, ready to obey 
his every command. We see that also in 1 Kings 22 or Daniel 7, uh, among other places. So we have this picture now of God on his throne in heaven, surrounded by a divine council who have come to him to give an account of their doings. And this verse continues, and Satan also came among them. Satan, referring here to whom is commonly understood to be the devil, but Satan is not his name. Uh, Satan, or the Satan, is in fact a title. The word Satan in Hebrew means to oppose, to obstruct, or to accuse. In Greek, it literally means adversary. So the adversary, the accuser, comes with them. The devil, or the Satan, we know to be a high angelic being, one who before creation rebelled against God. And he has been at war with God's creation since the beginning of time. He has many titles in Scripture besides Satan. He's called the father of lies, the accuser, the beguiling serpent, the prince of darkness. And contrary to modern depictions, he's not some pointy-horned, pitchfork-wielding, ugly-looking party DJ ruling over the gates of hell. <laughs> he is, in fact, as the Bible describes him, very beautiful. He's described as disguising himself as an angel of light. He wears a cloak of light. And he... Where'd I go? Okay. And he, with the other fallen angels, and all who die apart from the mercies of God, will be cast into eternal torment. Furthermore, some of you may have heard the devil called the name Lucifer. This may come as a shock to some of you, but the word Lucifer does not actually appear in the original text anywhere in the Hebrew or the Greek. In Isaiah 14.12, we see a translation of O Day Star as Lucifer from the Latin to the English. Um, and Lucifer means light bearer, so O Day Star, uh, as to the devil um, that was applied to him. But uh, in the context, it appears it's actually being applied to Nebuchadnezzar, not to Satan. And so we have uh, sort of a poor translation leading to the name Lucifer. We don't actually know for certain if that was or is the devil's name. So in that case, we don't really know what to call him other than what the Bible calls him, which is a whole host of displeasing and unkind names. Uh, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. We don't need to know for certain what his name is. God chose in his wisdom not to reveal that to us. So back to Job. This divine counsel of the sons of God have come before the Lord, and with them is Satan. And verse 7 says, The Lord says to Satan, From where have you come? Now it's important to note here that God is not asking him out of ignorance, as though God does not know where the devil has been, uh, because God is, in fact, omniscient. He knows all things. He's also omnipresent. He has, his presence is everywhere in all of creation. God knows where every being is, what every being has done, is doing, and will do, both men and angels, the devil and the demons, and more so, God has indeed actually decreed all things that come to pass. So rather, God has asked Satan this question as a way of saying, state your business, likely resenting him for coming among the sons of God, a rhetorical question, knowing full well what his answer will be. 
Furthermore, this will actually bring out of Satan the answer that God would have him speak for the sake of our understanding and our good, the edification of the listener. In fact, there is good reason to believe that this conversation did not take place in a literal physical sense, as there are no physical beings in play here. This is a spiritual realm with spiritual beings. But we do know that this exchange took place, and this is true history. Uh, let's see. So Satan answers back, and he says to God, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down it, Satan has spent his free time searching out and exploring the hearts and the actions of carnal men. This fallen angel surrounds the hearts of evil men in an attempt to persuade, to deceive, to steal, kill, and destroy. He says this boastfully as if he were some god of this world, as though he had any dominion over it. Taking notes and surveying what he thinks ought to be his, he states it as if he actually had liberty to go wherever he pleased, all while well knowing full well that he is at the whim of God's sovereignty. So then God, of course, confidently responds in verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? God here is now repeating to Satan what was stated in the first five verses of chapter 1, that Job is a righteous man, a blameless man. He speaks as a father proud of his son, endorsing his character, and moral virtue among all the men of the earth. God knows full well that Job has caught the eye of Satan, and so in a sort of sarcastic tone, he appeals to his servant Job as if to say, I know that you know the character of this man, and yet your snares and traps set before him have failed, for he is blameless and obedient and virtuous. And of course God, God knows that the following about the following accusation about to be lobbed upon Job by the devil. Knowing the jealous and hateful character of Satan, this was sure to infuriate him, leaving him with the only option he pursues, that is, to accuse. Verse 9, Satan answered back to the Lord, Does Job fear God for no reason? There is absolutely no question of Job's faithfulness. And so Job makes, an ex or so Satan makes an excuse suggesting that Job must not fear God for his own sake, but rather has some ulterior motive. The self-serving devil cannot comprehend the idea that one would fear God out of love and obedience. And he cannot even point to any particular sin, you'll notice, which Job has committed, which ought to point out just how holy Job's character was. So what is left but to launch an all-out war against Job's motivation for his obedience? He continues in verse 10. He says, Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and all his possessions have increased in the land. And here begins the insidious attack of Job. Notice he does not make an outright claim that these are Job's intentions, but he rather merely calls them into question. The devil is not God and therefore is not omniscient. He cannot know your thoughts and read your mind. He, like us, is a creation bound within the limits of time and space and his nature. So he says, have you not put a hedge around him? A hedge or a, a fence or a wall of protection. Satan's first accusation 
is that God has protected Job from men and from demons. He's guarded by God's mighty armies of angels so that he was unable to be hurt by the evils of the world, both seen and unseen. Satan's frustration with Job's holiness is that God has created such a hedge around him that the devil himself could find no chink in the wall, no way in, no way to do him harm apart from God's explicit permission. And thus he makes the accusation that this must be reason number one that Job fears God. Satan assumes that all men at some level must be like him. The verse continues, and his house. It's important to understand that he's not speaking of the building in which Job resides, but rather his children, his family, his wife. Job's house has been protected by this hedge of the Lord. We know of no lost or sick children. We know that his wife remains with him, and they have, as we spoke about last week, have been successful and fruitful at the very least in worldly gain. Job's family has not been overcome by the devil insofar as we can tell, nor have his children risen up against him. He has been very blessed. And so verse 10 goes on, and all that he has on every side. So he moves on to Job's now material possessions, his sheep, his cattle, his servants, his land, his crops. To this point, God has also protected Job's provisions. Every single thing that falls under Job's ownership has been sovereignly protected by the hand of the Lord, both for Job's good and as a reward for his faithfulness. And the verse ends, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Now this does not merely include the work which Job had actually accomplished with his two mortal hands, but his servants as well, and all those in his employ. God has blessed Job abundantly, and surely the devil speculates that because God's unbelievable blessings shower Job, that this must be why Job fears the Lord and keeps his commandments. Job must love God not because of who God is, but rather because of his health and his wealth that God has blessed him with. Now, did you catch that? I suspect not. Satan is not accusing Job in reality. It is God that the devil is accusing. The father of lies is suggesting to his creator that God has manipulated his creation into loving him through giving him health, wealth, and prosperity. The audacity to accuse the mighty God and your own maker of being a deceptive, manipulative fraud who coerces his beloved people into loving him through other created means. That is a blasphemy of the highest order. But what do we expect from the devil? Verse 11. Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Note here that Satan speaks as one with no reverence, as if he is commanding God to do something. He doesn't speak as is, as is expected of one before the Lord, addressing him as my Lord or my God, but rather he says, you, your servant. Satan makes his demands and his predicted outcome, which by the time we finish Job, you'll see that the devil also does not know the future and is unable to rightly predict the things to come. And now he waits God's reply. Satan has essentially placed a bet on Job, and then he insinuates that God, that should God obey Satan's demands, <laughs> let's all laugh together, and hurt Job, stretch out his hand and hurt Job, that God, or that Job would break out against God, murmuring at and complaining of his providence, 
despising his wisdom, his righteousness, his holiness, his sovereignty, and they do ultimately apostatize from the faith altogether. Does anyone else find it rather amusing that this fallen created being, the devil, speaks to God as though he knows better? His arrogance is really outstanding. Now listen carefully to the way that God responds in verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now at first blush, it may seem as though God has submitted to the demands of Satan. But if you look a bit closer, it's not so. Satan's demand was that God strike Job down and all that he has. And God pulls an uno reverse card on him and says, you, you stretch out your hand against Job. So God's not going to stretch out his hand against Job, but he says, you do it. And furthermore, God has now also set very specific terms by which the devil will be permitted to do so. He's permitted to touch all that falls under Job's possessions, but he is not permitted to take his life. Job is not the one who holds his life, but rather God does. And God alone holds the keys to life and death. So Satan's powers here are limited to his family and his estate. His health and his life will be threatened later uh, as, we, as we see Satan uh, come back and try again. God's sovereignty here is on full display. I have often seen this idea somehow thrown out that God and Satan are like two opposite adversaries, equal in power, kind of duking it out and dueling over the people of the earth. I, I have especially seen that on really terrible Facebook posts, right? And so it's, it's, this, it's this idea that there's this cosmic war going on and they're just at war. Team Jesus or Team Devil, right? Well, that's a ridiculous and absurd fantasy and not at all realistic. Satan's power, and rather his entire existence, is entirely under the will and the power of God and his divine desires. He can do no more than God permits, and in fact, all that he does has been ultimately decreed by God since the, uh, before the very foundations of the earth, and no wicked deed done by him nor by man is random and purposeless, but rather it is permitted to the ultimate good of God's people and the glory to the Father." All things that come to pass are under God's sovereign decrees. All things. Otherwise, God is not sovereign. Every evil thought, word, and action ever committed, let's not forget, will also be dealt with. It's either been paid for on the cross, or you're going to pay for it for eternity. Which is a long time. Now, there's a lot here in this very short passage of Scripture and a lot for us to consider. But here are some of the most important things that I want you to take away from it. First, the reality of the seen and the unseen realm. The created world is not all that there is. The world is not just stuff. There is more going around, around us, going on around us than you can possibly imagine. There is a war between the spiritual and the physical. There's a war in you between your flesh and your spirit. That's a very real thing. 
It's really taking place. And you need, Christian, to be aware of that. Second, there is a devil. He is real. Satan and his minions are very real, very powerful, and their desire is to do everything that they can to strip you from God, to destroy all that which he has created, and ultimately he wants you. Remember Ephesians 6.12, which says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Church, we are at war. There is a cosmic war going on, and you must be equipped to fight it. Third, have hope. Although we are at war, it is God, the creator of the universe, who is on your side. Romans 8.31 reminds us, if God is for us, who can be against us? Every step your enemy takes is one that God alone permits. Make no mistake, you certainly can be hurt, you will fall, you will stumble, and you will fail. But the God who saved you will keep you. He shall not fall. You are in his hands, and you need to stay strong and stay faithful, like you'll see Job doing throughout this entire book. And if you haven't read Job, I highly recommend doing so. Uh, get way ahead, because it'll probably be like 10 years by the time we finish it. So please read Job. It's important to recognize we are, we are a Reformed church. We believe in God's total sovereignty over all things. Um, that includes our salvation. That includes every act that comes to pass throughout history. Now, you have freedom to work and to will within your nature. God has given you a nature, a human nature, but it is fallen. We are totally depraved. We're not utterly depraved. We are not as bad as we could be. But we are totally depraved. Our depravity, sin corrupts every faculty, every part of our being, and all of creation. Scripture says that all of creation groans for God's return because it's all been corrupted. But because God is sovereign, we can rest in hope and knowing that all that comes to pass, as difficult as it may be, is for our good and for his glory. It's not going to be for the good of those who hate him, but they will bring him glory in their eternal damnation. So I urge you, if you haven't, repent, trust in Christ, alone for salvation. There is no other name under heaven that can save you. And a lot of people will use that term, you know, we love Jesus. But you need to know what Jesus they're talking about. It's important that you know the scriptures and you know the Jesus of the Bible, the triune God of the scriptures, because Without that, you're going to be the one bringing God glory in hell. So I urge you to repent. And for those of you that are in the faith, stay strong, stay faithful, know God's word, put on the whole armor of God, and be ready to make war against the spiritual things. Because you're at war. The only question is if you're fighting back or not. So please be equipped. Short sermon today, but I only had two nights to finish it. <laughs> Uh, if you guys will please pray with me, and then we will sing praises to our good God.